Hello and welcome to the IRC Book Club, the show where every week we deconstruct, reconstruct the latest, biggest and most influential sales texts for you, our loyal audience, sales professionals. For those of you who don't know us, we're Johnny Graham and Mike Price from Inwood Revenue Consulting and we do work with the best salespeople from all over the UK. So if you're currently looking for your next career step up, get in touch with us. Or of course, if you are hiring, find us on LinkedIn, contact us and we'll solve your hiring problems for you. So Mike... Last week, we spoke a lot about this book. A book that I walked in on Monday morning oh, and, moaned, oh, this is rubbish, this book. <laughs> and moaned about incessantly all morning. And then we ended up recording an episode on section That's one. the longest ever episode. I reckon it's the longest ever episode we've done a book club. So, so the book is A Mind for Sales. And he, this guy is talking about the components of a good mind in selling. Yes. Now, you know I was red hot on this book. Loved yep. it. I think it wanes a bit in the middle, actually. Yes. But anyway. And I get why, now that we've talked about it on the show, I get why you've enjoyed it as much as you have. So it's broken into sections, and the sections are broken into chapters. Section two is called Your Greatest Assets. Yeah. And the first chapter of section two, which is chapter 11, your three greatest assets, your time, your mind, your network. Is bang right. Quote from one of your favourite sales authors, Tom Hopkins. Does he put quite... Yes, it is. You begin by always expecting good things to happen. Not now, particularly relevant at all to the chapter at hand. No, he talks about Warren Buffett. Yes. And what he talks really about here... really surprised me about Warren Buffett. I mean, he, just, he keeps large blocks of his calendar open. Bill Gates, Mike, spends at least a week every quarter tucked away reading. He has a reading week. Reading and thinking. Now, I think it's all right if you're a billionaire. But what if I if I turned around to you and said, "Listen, Johnny, I'm just going to go thinking for a week." It'd be a bit like, or what if a sales guy turned around to his boss and went, "Listen, boss, I'm just going to go off for a week every every quarter and just spend, think." I'm just going to spend a week thinking and reading books, thinking and reading. But his point is bang right, yeah, and we all know it. Readers are leaders. I do completely agree. And the the reality, he also makes a comment. I'm going to be honest with you, Mike. Um, oh, I'd rather you were. You and I are in the midst of doing some recruitment and hiring at Inward Revenue for uh, a researcher to come and work here in Leeds. And I've developed a theory. Oh, yeah? Yes. Over the years that we've been hiring people. If I look at every successful, truly top quality hire we've made that has been at the commercial operational level, i.e. people that sell stuff for us and do that sort of research recruitment work, they've all been readers. Well, yeah, I take it a step theory. I, you know, bear in mind, I'm not actually particularly a big reader of books, which is a great irony, much to my wife's annoyance. And your mum, who's an English teacher. Yeah, that, we, that we've got a, <laughs> uh, a book club that people listen to, and wives go, yeah, but you don't read books, Michael. I go, yeah, but... Well, I read at least one a month. Exactly. But I think reading in general, there's a direct correlation between reading and being clever. Yeah. Can't not be. How extensive your vocabulary is... There's something about reading, it just changes your brain. Mm-hmm. I agree. Whether it's... What I do think, some people read a lot of trash fiction. My wife reads a lot of really rubbish fiction. Yeah, I don't, isn't that good for you, a bit of know, escapism? I think the escapism is good, but I think that she does it in excess. And it makes... It provides no benefit to her intellectually. Oh, poor Gillian. Sorry about that. Gillian, if you listen... Does she yeah. listen? Does she help? So, chapter 11 was pretty boring. I didn't write any notes. Chapter 12. There's a couple of bits. Oh, go on then. This sort of weekly review, what did I learn, whom did I help, how will what I did today help me make tomorrow even better? 
he talks about doing sort of doing evening journaling. I've got to say, I try, I, I do journal religiously Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday in the morning. So one of the first things I do when I get up, I read the Economist Daily preview, and then I write my journal only for five minutes. I find evening journaling very difficult. I think it's a very trendy thing to say to people. Yeah, you've got to do your evening journaling before you go to sleep. It's supposed to be very good for insomnia. Yes, I can imagine. I get, I get my daughter to do it. Evidently, it empties your mind of what's yes. happened during the day. And I get it, but I find that when you're absolutely shattered and you've got to take the dog out for a wee... Just have five and, pints. And, and, and <laughs> yeah, drink a bottle of wine, yeah. And I'm damned. Actually, getting upstairs, because having that five minutes of journaling just before you get into bed, it's not that easy. Yeah, well, I didn't know on that, so I'm not going to comment on it. Um, I'm into chapter 12. Protecting your time, discipline is a virtue. I do agree with that. I yeah. think very, very easily, you know, people let their time boxes for certain tasks get invaded by others, which I think is a real mistake, actually. Yes, it is. I mean, he makes a comment here, I think it's page is it 111. Well, you're a lot further on than me. I'm on page 86 where he says... Oh, no, it's just the way my, my copy of the PDF is... Where he says that mastering time is about getting the most out of your time. We do not have a time management problem. We have a priority, a priority management. management problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, the other quote in this chapter, the question you need to ask yourself minimally once a day, if not multiple times per day, is if what you've just spent time working on made a difference with a customer or helped you achieve your goals. I th- I've written here, I think that's a really nice thought. Um, I think it's not even remotely realistic for a large section of our audience. The reality is a lot of them spend their time at stupid meetings they can't get out of. Yeah, I hate the meeting culture. On stupid commit calls they can't avoid and at stupid kickoff meetings that they have to go to. Mm-mm. You do see um, that a lot, yes. Um, and you and I have the luxury to say no to those things. We have the luxury of being disciplined. So do the salespeople, I think. Yeah. I'll tell you now, I think if you've got a top salesperson who worked for Oracle, Microsoft, SAP and IBM, blah 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 who said, turn round to the chief exec of Oracle, who is it, Larry? Larry, yeah. Said, Listen, is he Larry, still the CEO? I have no idea. I don't know. Let's say, for argument's sake, he is. And so, and so, Sarah, Oracle's top salesperson in the UK, yeah, was smashing it. She phoned up Larry. Said, "Listen, Larry, this whole listening to the commit call With 20 on people, how badly everybody else is doing. I'm just not going to do it. I won't be there. I'm not going to do it. And if you want me to be there, then you need to pick. They a, need to fire me. Then you need to pick a specific ten minute slot in which I speak. Outside of that, I won't be there. Do you reckon Larry would fire her? Well, she'd never get to speak to Larry, but... But, you know, theoretically. Because I, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think... I, I know of a salesperson that just gets involved on a commit call every week, and it happens on a Friday. Right. This particular candidate I've been working with, and he was telling me it's a two- to three-hour call in which everybody has to attend. Just mental, that, isn't it? So you do the maths. Three hours, it's 150 working hours. But do you know what that is? That's not about the sales call. It's about That's the manager. About that, it's about some of these companies are cults. Well, it's it's just, a culty thing to do. My immediate, the immediate reaction I said to him was, that's 150 working hours a year, divided by eight. What? Yeah, mental. You've just spent ten working days of a year, what? But I think that salesperson is weak. Yes, now they're talk- he spent 5% of his year on a commit call. He or she's weak. They should be saying, no, I'm just not going to do that. Well, it's not even that, it should be. Here's where we're at. If you really want me to sit and waste three hours of my time every week, selling time, that I could be using for dialing out 
getting opportunities. I'm not going to do it. I'll leave. Here's what we'll do. I'm either going to leave or you're going to allow me to dial in for a 10-minute slot when you want me to speak. Yeah. Because that sales manager, why doesn't that sales manager just have five minutes with each? But I don't intend to, yes, I don't intend to listen to everybody else's miserable week. Correct. And whilst I'm sat there with you lot on hold, trying to read my emails until it's my turn, it's just ridiculous. But that, uh, uh, so I get his point, and it's a nice thought, but a, a lot of the people you and I work with, they get sucked into stuff. They go to trade shows. They go. They end up on sale. I was speaking to a candidate the other day who is having a mediocre year. Well, that's why I talked to you. Yeah. And he said, I've got to go on some sales training tomorrow. And I said, how do you feel about that? And he said, I'm annoyed about it. And I said, why? And he said, the thing is, as it happens, I'm having a mediocre year, but every half-decent deal that's come my way, I've closed. And the training is on how to close more business. But I don't really need training on that. He said, I'm yes. all right. He said, you give me a half-decent opportunity, I'll close it. He said, the problem I've got is I'm really struggling to find opportunities. But I've got to spend three days away from my activity of generating opportunities when I badly need opportunities, sat in a sales training that's compulsory on how to close opportunities when my conversion ratio is 100%. Right, he's got a fair point. <laughs> yeah, he's got a fair point. And, and so the point our author is making here about the having a prioritisation problem Somebody else had decided a preposterous priority yeah, for that. Somebody else's priority, isn't it, clearly? Well, it wasn't even somebody else's priority. Somebody else has spent some corporate money on some sales training that that particular individual did not need. Mm. And nobody's actually thought, well, actually, what really he needs is some help getting some appointments. Why don't we spend three grand on a marketing campaign rather than three grand on a sales training mm. programme that he doesn't need because actually he converted 100% of his opportunities, the ones he's, we've actually got him and the ones he's got himself. Mm, mm, I agree. But instead, the candidate's now looking for a job and it's going to cost them how many hundreds of thousands of pounds to replace the guy? He said, ranting. I'm into chapter 13. I think these middle chapters, I didn't take. I mean, I take. You can tell by the first shot, I took loads of notes. Yeah. So it's not like. It, it wanes, doesn't it? Yeah, I it, think so. It, it wanes, I think. Chapter yeah. 13 is called Building Your Mind. Okay. Interestingly, page 92. How much are you reading? Yeah. What were we just talking about? Yeah. How much are you reading? Are you able to hold your own? In and then he talks about being being knowledgeable and credible in meetings, doesn't he? Yes. And about how... how and he's right. You know, Anthony Annarino spoke about it a lot in the last book we talked about of his, didn't he? At some point, if you do really want to play the game at the right level, you've got to sit in front of a C-level executive and talk about their world. You've got something to add to them, haven't you? Yeah, you've got to say something they didn't know. And it's not about saying something they didn't know to make them feel uncomfortable, but you just got to bring something to the party that they don't I, bring. I often find, yeah, on the uncomfortable fit, bit, I often find, not often, I sometimes hear, when I'm talking to candidates and taking interview feedback, the candidate will go, oh, he asked me some really weird questions. And the minute I do that, I just think, what is the point of that? You know, so that the client will ask the candidate really daft questions to sort of try and put the candidate on edge. Well, there's a difference between an oblique question and a daft question, isn't there? I think they're both the same, don't you? No. I often ask people what was the last book you read. It could easily be viewed as it could easily be viewed as an oblique, daft question. But I actually have a very precise purpose. Which is I want to know, is this person reading? Are they I don't think it's that oblique, really. But anyway, getting back to the book. I wonder how many of our clients would ask a candidate, what's the last book you read? Well, none of them. We were on so we've done building your I'm mind. On, I'm on page ninety three actually, which is quite interesting. He so, says he talked about learning from people. And he likes learning from others. I've got to say, I think in our job, we're very fortunate because we actually 
talk to salespeople and we can learn quite a lot from them. It's like yes, it's like we're constantly sparring all the time. Yes, and also you can learn by osmosis. I think one of the things we found is winning cultures create winning cultures. Yes, success beget success does create success. So if you put a mediocre guy in a winning team of sales guys, mm. one of two things will happen. Well, look at the QAS and PTC teams of yes. early 2000s. Correct. One of two things always happens. Mm. They either are crushed within a week, bullied out of the team by the alpha males and alpha females, or they rise to the level of the others somewhere there or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, that's the reality is they develop, people develop often in the... Often in those teams, people learn and develop more than they ever will in any training or formal environment just by sheer nature of peer pressure. Mm. Because it's a be like us or go away culture, isn't it? Yes, 100%. Um, But that's not about that personal development. People don't actively go out and say, oh, I'm going to really develop my game here. Chapter 14. Chapter 14. Now, for those of you who listened to the first show, I loved this book. I think chapter 11, 12, and now 14 are just really boring. <laughs> okay, why? I don't know. It, uh, well, why are they boring? Because I'm not finding them interesting, which I know is an obvious... But actually, it just doesn't feel like there's as much content in here. You know, chapter 14, your network is your best investment. Very true. But I mean, actually, what is this chapter? It's a poor chapter that passes some comment about networking. You know, I look at how many notes I've taken. I, I've hardly taken it. You know... Sales is not a solo activity, sales is a team sport. Yeah, what yeah. he's talking about is, and he, and he is right, is having a group, a net. Look, uh, we we have a family friend who I'm afraid is probably not long for this world with an alcohol problem. Okay. Right? That's reality. It's a friend of my wife's that she's known since childhood. I don't think she'll probably see the year out. That's very okay. sad. And Gillian is going to be very upset when it happens. The reality of that particular individual is she has kept bad company her whole life. Yeah, yeah. Really bad. Slept with dogs. She has laid down with the dogs and she has come up with the fleas. Mm. And in the end, she's woken up with an alcohol problem, sometimes drug problem. She has she just made terrible, terrible choices when they were 16, 17 and continued to make them time after time after time. So she was in her 40s. Right. So what he's saying is, if you hang around with idiots and vermin... Don't be surprised if you're idiot. If actually your knowledge, your skills, your success factor is that of the people that you hang around with, and the point he's making is you've got to be proactive with the quality of the people that you network with and the quality of the people that you hang around with in professional and at times personal circles, and that the two have a very significant. You see, you summarise that a lot, a lot better, better than, than he wrote, has. Better than he wrote the chapter. Yeah. Should have asked me to write it. Yeah. Uh, and that the two have a very close interconnection between your performance in work and your performance in life. And mm. it is true, isn't it, you know? Yeah, it is true. It's also true in the sales team, isn't it? Like you say, you know, you get a mediocre guy, put him in a good How team full of good people. Have you seen it? Where we've had it, where we've hired people and guys come in and it's interesting to see where magnetically they go in the room. Mm, from mm. a friendships and peer group perspective, do they go to the guy who's bottom of the table or the top of the table? Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. It's almost fascinating to watch if it wasn't for the fact that the moment they gravitate towards the guy who's bottom of the table, you know they're a wrong one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know they're going to be a bottom of the table. Yeah. 
and it, it sort of all happens in about the first week and a half, two weeks. Yeah. Watching them, who do they gravitate towards? Do they, they, have they got the guts to gravitate towards hanging around with the top, top, the top dog in the room mm. and wanting to hang out with them and, and siphon information? It, it does and create knowledge. an army of clones, though, doesn't it? You know, you you, yes. you, you you know, you look at. I was talking to my daughter about natural selection, actually, and she was meaning it more about chaffinches, I think, than she was people. <laughs> but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that's how it was done, on, I think, isn't it? But you know, let's be clear about it. If we got the LinkedIn pictures of the people who work for Microsoft in the UK in front of us, they look the same. They are all good-looking people, they look the same. middle class with degrees, who are aged between twenty-seven and thirty-three. Yeah, if you've got an evolutionary sociologist... Microsoft, I don't think, go out to employ fat, ugly people in their late 50s without degrees. And Microsoft can't really sue us for that because I think they'd struggle to prove that I'm wrong. They hire a type. BT, hire a type. Oracle, hire a type. There's a type. There's a type, a class type, a socio-demographic type, a cultural type. I was reading this thing about um, how... Uh, a lot of the working classes, you know, and this divide that exists in England, it is, you know, it, it is becoming stronger with uh, the free, with the unpaid um, work experience that the big five consulting companies, you know, the internships they ask people to do. So, so you can come be an intern at PwC, so you don't get paid, you've got to live in central London, you've got to commute to central London, so it's, actually, it's actually selective. It's 100% selective. They're what? saying it's not selective, it, but it is selective. Well, look at anybody. You know, we're not paying our wage. Well, look at anybody whose mummy and daddy can afford to pay for their kid to be in... To, to live in central London. Well, what, what did we do last summer? We sent Izzy to a six-week audition preparation camp at Mount View. There were no working-class kids there. Well, it was in London. Exactly. And we had to pay for an Airbnb for six weeks. It's nuts, isn't it? We paid for an Airbnb for six weeks. So who was on that course? A girl whose parents had flown her in from Norway. Right. Uh, who was apparently an amazing singer. Some other girl that had flown in from Germany. You know. Nuts. Chapter 15. Sales is not a solo activity, it's a team sport. Now, all, this we, was an interesting one. Yeah, I thought it was more interesting. We all like to think that we're smarter than we really are. I contend that smart people are those who know they are not the smartest. The smartest people are those who know the best way to succeed is by surrounding themselves with people who are smarter than themselves. I hear that a lot. It's a cliche. I don't think, very, I don't think many people do it. It's interesting because I, I haven't really overwhelmingly enjoyed this book over the weekend. So as a result... The first just, section I yes, love. Yes, so to psychologically cleanse myself, I immediately started reading another book over the weekend, which was Trillion Dollar Coach, which is, they call it the Leadership Handbook of Silicon Valley's Bill Campbell. Who was coached to... Are you telling me about this? Who was coached to uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Sergey Brin, Larry Page. Literally, you name a heavyweight Silicon Valley luminary, this guy was their coach. He was the executive coach of executive coaches. And it's written by some of the people he worked with and coached. And he talk, they talk a lot about some of Bill's philosophies. He was an ex-American football coach who hadn't really succeeded in American football, but really did succeed in business. And... Um, he talks about teams, teams, teams. Oh, does he? Teams, teams. What, are you, what is happening in the team, the team, the team? And a, a lot of that, and it, it's really got me thinking about the team 
and it's what's it, what's been fascinating about it is you and I have talked a lot about teams mm. in the last couple of weeks, haven't we? And gone mm. back to thrice weekly fifteen minute team models. Mm. And what he's getting at here is you can't be a, a solo player as a as a salesman. You have to be part of a wider unit. I mean, he's probably right, isn't he? But, some people but my do- point is, that the point that he makes here is he says top-class people recruit people better than themselves. I actually don't think there's that many people who do recruit, pe- recruit people better than, than themselves. No, but the ones that who are really, really top-class are clever enough to do it. Yeah, but we're talking about, like, top 5%. Yes. You know, you look at... The, it, was, it was really interesting reading that book I've been reading at the weekend because they talk about you're getting into some history of Google and history of Microsoft. Mm. And what really is interesting is... Sergey Brin and Larry Page, they really did hire people who were as clever or cleverer than them. Well, that fair enough to them. They really did. You know, they went out to hire clever, clever, clever people and then realised that they had serious management problems hiring such smart people. But they obsessed about hiring clever people. What's really interesting is I had a very good meeting with a customer a while ago, a £600 million private company. The CEO still runs it. His mantra is, hire clever people, they will work stuff out. Yeah, I mean, we found that, actually, haven't we? What do you think of the psychometric component of assessing people's suitability from an intelligence perspective? I'm a big believer. Yeah. Yep. Right, fair enough. As much as it pisses me right off because it lowers my conversion ratio as a recruitment consultant... You guys think it's the right thing to do? The clients are bang right here. Fair enough. Clever people get the job done better than thick people. Full stop, capital letter, end of... So here we are, we're talking about Sales is Not Bowling, which I think is a bad title for this section. <laughs> but nonetheless... Where's that? Uh, page 104. Um, but anyway, Sales is Not Bowling, your customers are not pins to be knocked over, blah de blah blah But he raises a point which is interesting. It never ceases to amaze me the number of times a salesperson has lost a major account because their main contact has moved on long ago. Now you and I often have an argument about do we sell to accounts or do we sell to people? Mm. Now, you know I think we sell to people. Do we sell to accounts or do we sell to people? <sighs> I think he is partially right and partially wrong, isn't he? Well, that's my question. It's not his question. Because we've all been there. In recruitment, it really does happen. You've got an account, client X leaves, and you're stuffed. Yeah, I don't think you are, because you... And people say, well, you should blue sheet it and make sure that you're powerful elsewhere in the account. But actually, normally, there is one champion as a recruitment consultant. You say, I think, you, are, I think you go and work with that other person. You look at one of my key clients at the minute. Why are they my key client? Because he's my key contact. Yeah. Why am I going to that appointment in London on Thursday, Mike? Because uh, you, you deadpan on proving me wrong that it's a waste of time. Again. No, because there's a new decision maker in town. That's why. New decision maker in town. Fair enough. I, do, I, I sort of agree with that. And then we go on to page 106. Let your sales manager ride shotgun. What do you think to that? Um, I sort of can see the merits in it, actually. You know, it would irritate me, personally. If you said to me, can I come to a point with you, Mike? I'd say no, because it will irritate me. I wrote here, a large proportion of the people who we work with view this wrongly, though, and they view it as oppression. Well, it normally is. If I, yes. And maybe that's... Maybe we need to get Keith Rosen back on for a chat uh, to talk about sales leadership. But the reality is, I reckon in this modern day and age, very few leaders do a ride along. 
for anything other than oppression? Well, I think very few leaders do a ride-along unless there's a really big deal going down. Mm. Where they'll go along and say, all right, what are you doing this week? I'm going to see a customer next week. All right, mind if I come? With, with, the with good in, intent. With good intent, with the salesperson's understanding that actually my manager wants to come along to watch what I'm doing and help me out and, and support me and help coach and develop me. Let's get it right. I think there's not a lot that going on out there. I agree. I don't think there's much at all. No. Um, and I think that any salesperson, I would say, there's a challenge here, which is at our level of the market, people won't have it. It goes back to... It's mixed, isn't it, I think? People won't have it. Listen, that fellow that you're about to place in the retail space. Oh, God. Could you imagine? Hello, mate. I'm coming to an appointment with you next week. Oh, really? Well, I'll have found another job by then. Yeah, exactly. He would leave. You are? You are coming to my appointment with me? What? Am I four? Yeah, he would. He would view it that cynically, yes. And you, and, and we both work with a lot of people are at that point in but, their but career there's some, But there's some goodness in that, though, because he goes on here. It is sort of a segue into page 107. He says, great salespeople do not try and make all the decisions. I have always, I have always said, this is what Hunter says, the salesperson who is willing to involve others and benefit from others will win. They will win because they have created a bigger team. And I've always said about selling is that when it comes to ego, that actually represents, creates a lot of problems for salespeople. But a salesperson without an ego won't be able to do it. Go on. Well, I, th- I think to be to 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 be good in selling, to be good in selling, you have to have an ego of some kind. Because your ego protects you, it motivates you, it drives you. Yeah, right. It has all of those things. Yeah. But then your ego is also a big problem for you, in as much as your ego will stop you listening to other people. Stop. It will make counsel. you be very single-minded. If somebody gives you counsel, you won't listen to it. So ego management is a big part in the team, and particularly when you get. So let's just make an assumption that all salespeople have got some form of ego. Yeah. And let's say you've got. You know, uh, let's use our example here. So Lily is lead salesperson. Yeah. She then decides. She's a killer. Yeah. She's out there nailing the sales. Yeah. She then decides to take you and me to an account. Yeah. Let's assume Lily's got a big ego because she's a salesperson. Yeah. We all know you've got a big ego. Me. We all know I'm Why? very modest. Um, but let's assume we've got both got big egos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do our egos help Lily's ego? Because I'm always imposing my will. My ego on the and even leadership. if you and if you say something like a suggested course of action, but that's about the you're basics. then going to sell your suggested course of action to her for her to action it, even though she has more information than you. Can you remember the book we did on um, our other podcast, Always Be Hiring, the sales leadership book, Keith Rosen? I can't actually. You see, that's about having coaching contracts with your people. Oh, I do, I do remember it now you just said that, yes. Yeah, and that's about the... I think a, 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 a sales leader going on a ride along with a salesperson is not so much about egos, it's more about the le, the quality of the sales leader than it is the quality of the salesperson. And the ability of the sales leader to create coaching and developmental working contracts. And I don't mean contracts as in contracts of employment. I know but meant, emotional yeah. contracts of, listen, I'm a coach, I will coach you, 
we'll agree on how we're going to coach, but there will be coaching. And if you're not in for that, then don't come work here. But that's how this will be. But you see, you're you're not then being a coach. You're being a dictator. Uh, that is not what a coach would do. No. And that's my point uh, about uh, ego and how that just. But at some point, it has to be issue. correct. But there is there there is always a there are a, I do believe there are sales leaders out there. I'm working with one at the moment on a job I'm working on. And one of the things the client said they really liked about him was uh, he could very clearly demonstrate how he had developed and grown his team and how he had taken guys out of inside sales and turned them into field sales guys, mm. how he had turned some of those field sales guys into senior level sales guys, and how he had turned some of those senior level sales guys into managers. Fair enough. And, that, and according to the client, he said it was extremely clear, and he was very clear, precisely how he developed that. Mm. Now, that's not about salespeople going to their boss and saying, come on, I'll ride along with me. That's about him creating a coaching culture. Yes. And I think, therefore, in the auspices of this book, he talks about, get your boss to come on and ride along. I just don't, that doesn't work for me. It's actually about, is your boss creating a coaching, a, a, a coaching culture? And are you open to that coaching culture? Yes, I get your point. But it still comes down to ego. Being open to coaching is about ego. It's about everybody's ego. That is the problem with salespeople, with sales teams working collectively. Imagine why young football teams often win titles. Yes, correct. Because there's not one person there going, yeah. Because there's no 29, 30-year-old Mario Balotelli saying, I don't need you to tell me how to play when I'm in front of a goal. Yeah, exactly. So I skipped on here to page 110. He goes, one of the fastest ways to gain response from a senior level person in a company you sell to is by sending them an email with a link to a news story about one of their customers. Really smart thing to do that. Yeah. Just in isolation. I know there's a lot more. Keeping up with the trade press. Yeah, yeah. It's not a complex thing, is it? I thought that was a really useful point as well. I actually also highlighted that. He goes, you are a peer sending them key information. I've got to say, I always view myself as a peer of everyone I deal with anyway. Well, that, that, that comes back down to some of the stuff we talked about in section one, isn't it? And actually, it pro- it's probably missing from the book. I can remember drawing, I can remember who, I don't know who it was now, but somebody that worked here, and he was just, I felt like he was getting, he was being very reverential. And on a piece of paper, I drew two stickmen. One stickman was bigger than the other stickman, and the big stickman is looking down at the little stickman. And I said, you're the little stickman. He said, how do you know? I can, t- I can just tell you you're the little stickman. He said, should I think about being the big stick man? I said, no, think about being a stick man that's equal in size. It's a very difficult sort of thing to try and to explain to a salesperson. They all poo. It's very Sandler-ish, isn't it? You know, Sandler talks about the equality in the relationship. I always used to sit and they all go to the toilet, mate. Yeah, of course they do, yeah. They all go to the toilet and they all get gutted when their team gets beat. They're all nice people, actually, as well. Yeah. But maybe I think they're nice people because I view them as my peers. Yeah, I can't quite work out where the chicken and egg is there. Yes, but you know what I mean. Yeah, they all go to the toilet. They all get gutted when their team gets beat. I view them as peers. They all get soppy over their dog. I don't. Yeah, you're the only person I know who doesn't get soppy over his dog. I don't, yeah. Denzel can run off for all I care. <laughs> um, so there we go. I'm up to page 113, unless you've got anything to yeah, add. Yeah, so next week we'll be doing uh, section three. Week after that, four and five. And then we'll have Mark on the show to defend our criticism of his book. No, I'm not critical of his no, book. We, we've the not, middle bit just, just got a bit boring. It meand- it, this one's meandered a bit, but we've still actually found some very important points. We have. And well, some very important polls for thought. So that's us for a week. Remember, if you've listened and liked what you've listened to today, you're going to see us on LinkedIn. There's little sound bites that Lily worked so hard to create. 
where we're talking a little bit hit the like and share button share is good share sends it out into a wider network for us and grows the podcast which means that we'll keep making the podcast for your listening pleasure see you next week